Rocking chair, chair session. With Elisa Di Batista. Maria Teresa Barber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to RCS Rocking Chair Sessions, Volume 45, with artist Adler Guerrier. 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 How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you this morning? Very well. I guess Excellent. it's afternoon already, to tell the truth. But. Oh, this is right. It's noon. I, I feel like it's morning because I normally sleep in on the weekends. Today we are pre-recording for President's Day. Since President's Day is normally a day people take off, um, we've had the pleasure of Adler being willing to come in on his Saturday um, weekend to sit down with us. Um, and we'd love to jump in because we have so much going on right now that we don't care where we begin as long as we just get started. <laughs> okay, um, we're really interested. You currently have have a show up um, in Los Angeles. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Um, yes, I actually have multiple shows up in Los Angeles, so nice. the truth, it just happened to be the luck of it. But the main show, it's uh, at, um, at CAM, at California African American Museum. The show's called Conditions and Forms for Black Longevity. Um, I don't know how to phrase this. I mean, it's a show that was proposed and sort of developed in the past couple of years. Um, it wanted to piggyback from my research and my show that was at PAM in 2014. Um, really, it, I wanted to make a work, uh, I wanted to make a body of work for a show that thinks of LA and Miami in conjunction uh, while thinking about sort of like a progressive sort of a line. So that is sort of began with, uh, well, that has a high point of uh, the 1960s, civil rights movements, riots, both in Watts and Miami, mm -hmm. um, and try to move forward from that, uh, even though I went backwards as well. Um, so that's what the show ended up being. The show ended up being this sort of thinking about what are the sort of spaces that are necessary for an idea of longevity, especially one that is connected to where black lives sort of like are sighted um, and what that means, what that means to live in a place where, in essence, monumental events has, uh, is adjacent to it, to you, um, even though that may or may not be um, relevant in your life. Mm -hmm. um, so what is it? What does it mean to live next to history? What does it, what does it mean to live within a, within a non-geographically defined network where uh, what informs that space are a lot of things that are not necessarily bound by you know the building, the, the block or mm -hmm. that you live in. Um, do you feel that has something to do with the fact that, for example, we do a little bit of research before we begin. You were born in Port Al Prince, Haiti, and now being here in Miami and then having traveled to other locations in the world, do you feel that you want to more or less um, not flatline and make it um, cohesive or this is the experience you have everywhere, but that there is a similar experience that you're trying to more or less um, portray to the audience? Um, yes, and, yes and no. Uh, being an immigrant in the U.S. makes is a 
it's actually a, a very specific point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but being an immigrant who actually lives in Miami is also the more pronounced point of view because it's a sort of like relationship of what it means to be an immigrant here versus, uh, versus what it means to be an immigrant, I will say, even in Orlando, Florida. Certainly. I think it's actually very different. And by the time you go to LA, so the dynamic of immigration, the dynamic of American versus native versus uh, Mexican immigrants, and all, all those, or, um, and Pan-Asian, mm -hmm. um, it's really complex uh, mm -hmm. in Los Angeles um, because the history is different. Yes. But in Miami, our history is also different. Yeah. And so I think it's a duality of the discourse that actually is actually more interesting for me. No, so what's interesting is that is how does one establish themselves? How does one connect to you know sort of the dominant? narrative of a place, how do you sort of negotiate the terms for your own little nook and contribute to the dominant narrative, if that's possible. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's all of those things because it's, on one end, it's their specificness of it, but on the other hand, this is still the United States of America. Mm -hmm. It's like um, the immigrant narrative from other places to the U.S. itself. Um, the U.S. and time have uh, shaped as what that means. So, for example, you know, pre—I mean, closer to the World War II, uh, before World War II, and afterwards, you know, for Europeans who are coming to the U.S., mostly passing through New York and those yeah. states, it, it, the narrative is pretty much straightforward in a way, even though how each immigrant group is treated is not necessarily the same. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, in like late 1890s, late 1800s, uh, Asians who were moving to the U.S. were mostly coming to work, so it's either mining or railroad. And so it's like, and what you, and the sort of like, cultural baggage that someone will bring, would have brought with them in the 1890s versus the 1940s or versus the 1980s uh, are very different because the relationship from of a home country yeah. to the U.S. or relationship of of uh, immigrant group to is there already an immigrant group we can connect to, right? All, all those things sort of uh, matters and become sort of the sort of language of how one established themselves, how ones make a sort of a claim for, you know, how their narrative connects to here, to those landscapes. And so that all those things are, are what I think yeah. uh, I want to tap on. Totally. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's a larger arc of the show. I mean, in a way, it's not, Los Angeles is as much as it's, sort of known to us through media, TV, and all that, um, for that matter, California. Um, it required at least me to go there to actually localize and understand like how much, how much is not necessarily depicted in a way that I want it to be depicted. Mm -hmm. So my, uh, my practice sort of depicts space in a particular way that I think it's necessary to highlight, um, I don't know, everyday moments mm -hmm. to highlight uh, its poetic usefulness or just its practicality, um, which is sort of different than, you know, how a movie would. 
would do it because the movie is, it has its own art or the business bureau, that matter, uh, those, those kind of things. Um, and so I needed to do that in LA as well, in order to, uh, yeah, in order for this show or the work to develop in a way that's, that, feels, that feels right. So yeah, that's, that's the show. So you were able to spend some time in Los Angeles making work? or uh, Yeah, that was required. Nice. How long were you there? Mm, a week. And where were you kind of set up somewhere, or did you just like travel around, or uh, like I, on your own, or was? No, 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 no. There's there's plenty of people to help. I mean, from the curator of the show, Diana Nowy, she Nally who lives there. there. Mm -hmm. I have other friends who live there. Mm -hmm. But you know, right, there's there's research. There was already points of interest. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I just had to go there. Mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah. We live in a different time when it comes to our relationship to, to places as well as how much information is we can get, we have access to, to any, any place. So, you know, even before I went, I know all the places I needed to go mm -hmm. or wanted to go. But nevertheless, I, don't, I didn't know how significant they were going to be. Mm -hmm. I didn't know Until what kind there. of impression they were going to make. So we, I had a list and we went, we went down the line and we went to all those places. Mm -hmm. And the work sort of developed out of what happened when I was there. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss a little bit how you impact um, this, this research you were doing, not just before you got to LA, but also there through material? Like, your, what is, like uh, if you could walk us through the show of visually what we would encounter if we were there. Right, the show is um, functions as a big installation in the way of um, there are immediately when you walk the gallery, there's a dominant there's a dominant wall with well, there's two walls on the right and directly that'll with some wall paintings. Uh, one of them is a dominant homestead green within the. Benjamin Moore line, and then the other one is a is a gray numbers gray, um, and on both wall there are line paintings, uh, there there are lines and forms, um, and on top of that there are photographic prints, there are collage and printmaking works, um, and then there's a there's another larger work. That's part of a series that I call The Folds. It's about 72 by 48. Works on paper with collage and prints and text. Um, yeah, at least those two first walls on the right when you first walk in. There's, it's kind of text dominated. Well, no, actually, that's not true. It's dominated by color. There's some text in those work. And those texts is the, sort of like uh, the heavy work of like introducing like uh, I would say sub themes for the show. Mm -hmm. One of them being it's a, it's a quote from Malcolm X. Um, the quote is something to the effect of, uh, I guess my text in the in the drawing is says something like, "We will join with anyone who's willing to um, change the miserable condition that exists on this earth." Um, and that's one text. And then another text is, is from uh, MLK, where he says something to the effect about longevity has its place. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those works, those, those quote, those pieces of text, it becomes a, something that's developed throughout the show. Mm -hmm. um, what does it mean to, to join in together to work toward a goal? What does it mean that 
misery on this earth is conditional, right? It's like Malcolm X is pretty much says it. It's like there's a misery on this earth, but it's a condition that can be changed, right? It's like, do we believe that? Do we accept that misery is, uh, can be changed in the light of the history of human beings? It's like, especially coming from Malcolm X, it's like that actually okay. is a more pronounced way to, to view it. Um, that specific text um, is on a print drawing that uh, that that is especially South Florida relevant. I mean, I'm using Ponciana's as a kind of a motif in the drawing. So there's some Ponciana prints, some Ponciana outline drawings, and then other forms and colors that I, that's usually in my practice. Um, and then the one about black longevity is also a little long. I've been using that for a, a little while because partly this, this claim for longevity, or at least as uh, Martha Luther King, uh, when he said it, it was almost as a kind of like, let's put that aside, right? Longevity has its place, he was saying, but there's other work that he has to do. I mean, in the context of the speech, uh, when he said it, you know, the next day he was planning to go march with the sanitation workers in Memphis. So it's a double sort of, um, it mirrors Malcolm's text of this thinking of longevity or a kind of a condition where that exists, yeah. that exists that is more tolerable than misery. And this idea of community and joining together and marching together and working together. Um, both, both sort of quote, uh, come from that sort of thinking, and um, and that is actually uh, the sort of larger thing about what I think. I mean, from what I mentioned already about immigrant communities and sort of like the history of uh, civil rights in the U.S. or the history of protests. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like uh, at the end of the day, it's all communal. At the end of the day, um, how you live in your house the sort of moral and sort of ethics that you hold is, um, is just that. But the moment you involve your neighbors in it, the moment you involve your community in it, it becomes a, a much larger thing. It becomes amplified. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the thing as well that's actually interesting, right? It's like, you know, it's like if Malcolm says, I will join with anyone to, to change misery, it's like, you know, the moment you hear that, you, you want to join Malcolm. You want to, it's almost an, it's an invitation he's putting out there that he's open for this type of communal work. Um, and I think many people have answered him like, yeah, we'll, we'll march with you, we'll, we'll join with you, we'll try to change the misery of the world, uh, of the face of this planet. And it's that type of like, I don't know, uh, gesture, I think, that I want and that I hope that the work contributes to. I hope it contributes to the sort of like accumulation of that changes uh, misery or that improve the condition. So that's why partly the show is that, uh, that sort of uh, language, conditions and forms um, uh, is the title of the show. Mm -hmm. um, 
partly it's technical. I mean, it's a it's a reference to legalese, like terms, conditions, forms. Those are those are terms that are you know where, where business negotiate your relationship with you know how you use their own the phone that you own, but they claim it's still theirs. You can do this or that or, or the other with it. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's it's also the part that I like about this uh, proposal in a way, about um, that conditions are fluid. Conditions are always fluid. The only condition that's not fluid, in essence, is death. But mm -hmm. while you're still alive, you're still in, in control enough to contribute to the condition that you live in. So Navigate. I think that's yeah, certainly. I'm curious. Um, because you do mention all these different mediums and how they more or less coexist within these spaces that you create. Um, when did you first either decide to collage? Because I feel collage and um, even photography is such a, it has to do with like capturing a moment in history and time. And so when was your first curiosity to more or less start creating these like scrapbooking, these narratives, just putting them all together? Um, when was that, did that occur for you? How early? Ah, uh, no, that's probably, that's probably since art, uh, since art school. Um, my relationship with photography is not unsimilar to yours in that it is, uh, I guess within a lane that is, I was not a photo major in college, but I took enough photos for me to feel comfortable in the lab. Um, and photography allows an, an, an immediacy mm -hmm. on one end, but it also allow, I mean, this documentary strain captures an aspect of reality that is sometimes necessary. Um, so painting, a cityscape is, in essence, not a tool to discuss the sort of reality of what that street looks like. Whereas a photo taken on that street on this date, if you know the date, mm -hmm. um, can become evidence on that aspect of reality. And, and even if the street changes the day after you took the photo. Still evidence. Evidence is such is, a good word. Exactly. So, so mm -hmm. photography captures moments, but those moments are almost irrelevant as to what value they hold. And the value that they hold is corroborated with other marks or framing gestures or other language, all the other things that occurs in art generally. So um, photography produces images which that we can work with. So that became that became how I use photography for um, for a long time. It's I wanted to capture really specific moments and images that are within a time. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, because of the nature of art making, we can we can change the time. You know, we can take a photo today and make it seem like it was taken yesterday. I mean, even the difference of one day is real, it's not is slight. But we can you know we can jump and say this is a photo of 1960s, and even though it was taken in Miami in 1927. You know, very few people will question that until they go back and realize, like, this couldn't be, right? So one of the works that, um, that I did um, is a piece that said Pam. It's in their permanent collection now. Um, it kind of started with, 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 that, with that impetus. It's like uh, I, uh, there was a radio report about 
uh, a Herald reporter who passed away. It was his obituary. And then the Herald, they were like, oh yeah, he was pivotal in covering like riots in Miami in 1968. And then the whole thing for me was like, oh, 1968 is this sort of like fluid, pivotal year globally. And I didn't realize Miami had a moment in that. So. And doing the work and doing the research, it was sort of important to actually produce some photos that would have depicted Miami in a way that would be consistent in 1968. Pretty much what that meant is like, you know, uh, taking a photo of a house or a building that would have been a uh, uh, yeah in 1968. Uh, so a 1930s house, 1940s house. A tree is a tree, so you know that's still true. Um, so it's this, it's this type of framing. So that's one of the things that's in that body of work. It's like photos that, in essence, whose whose time register is, uh, I guess, is framed by the work, not necessarily by the time of the production of the work. So that's that's what art. Longevity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you went to New World, right? I did. For high school already or college. College. Uh, when did this decision come to you that you, you know, wanted to commit to go to an art school and you wanted to be an artist? Was that right, right away from like already growing up or was No, it? no, no. I went to Dash for high school and the moment I went to Dash I knew this is a this is where I wanted to be. So was that ninth grade? Um, it's to to be introduced to process of making art and understanding like I don't know all the option it gives you it's it's it, it, it was it was a wonderful thing so that's that's when I knew which side of this sort of like line I wanted to be mm-hmm. but you know at the, at the same time as a high school student I'm just that I'm someone who's just beginning to learn how to make art but by the time I go to college it's like no this is um, there's no going back there's no there's no um, getting a job or and all those things. It's mm-hmm. like I was far from that. And was was there always a lot of support, like in your family, for you to follow that career? Yeah, or talking about it? immigration stories, like you know, like parents are like, get a real job, do something that's you know, like how was it when you first got here? And was that the direction your parents envisioned you going in? No, or? not at all. Um, I am. Um, I mean, my parents still thought I was going to be over studying architecture, even when I went to art school. I didn't really tell them. Um, but no, it's it's my parents always gave me the maximum room for me to be and explore whatever I I uh, yeah. Uh, I was interested in. So um, support, yeah, I I still need their help. If I become homeless tomorrow, I know for a fact I have a place to to go with my wife and my daughter. So yeah, support. Now I, I come from a <laughs> I come from people who are very supportive. Um, I don't come from people whose whose life are defined by money ambition or. And it's like, we, we need money because we want to live. We want to eat the food we want to eat. We want to drink our lemonade. But it's Enjoy like, life. Uh, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And did any, um, either of them or maybe a different family member have any artistic tendencies that you kind of sort of just witnessed at each other and you're like, oh, I want to try that? Or No. I mean, I will say yes, but that's, like I said, I I wanted to become an artist because I went to art school. That was the only thing that made that. Made that. Because my uncle, he drew. I mean, I there's 
the thing about the thing about uh, Haiti that we is hard to sometimes understand is that the whole place has art everywhere, mm-hmm. right? It's not it's not Miami in that sense. It's like Wynwood was a phenomenon. Oh, there's there's graffiti and that's a thing. Let's go. Okay, great. But the moment you drive down, you know, like one mile this way, one mile this way, where's the art? It says advertising, advertising is not art. Whereas in Haiti it's like everything is hand decorated. Everything looks like this, right? Someone did it with the intention of decorating it. Um, In a way, that's where I, that's the context I- You grew up around that. Yeah. Yeah. A couple years ago I went to Haiti, uh, I guess almost three years now. and I went to this village. It's a village that where, there's this uh, sculptor named George Lyoto. And he was the one who, um, I don't know when, when that was, I'm gonna say late, uh, early 50s, um, who took the sort of like drum barrels of oil, he uh, cut them open, flat them out, and started making the sort of like cut out out of the sheet metal nice. of, uh, uh, of, of the, those drums. Mm-hmm of recycled drums. Um, and I think his studio was in this village, right? So this village, and I mean by village, this is, the, this is a place that's less than 600 people live in it. Yeah. Um, but that's like an hour away from Port-au-Prince. Um, every, uh, there's two streets, every one in that village cut wood, I mean cut steel, decorate fences, it's like, that's what the village does. I mean, can you imagine being five or six years old and every house you walk down the street, someone's making art, someone is cutting steel, someone is painting. By the time you're nine or 10, you get to do little textures. And by the time you're a teenager, you get to cut. And by the time, well, by the time you're a late teenager, you can weld, you can set up your own shop, et cetera. That's, that, that exists in a way that is like, well, that doesn't exist in this country. I can say that for a fact, mm-hmm. right? And and so there's well, an aspect of art, mm-hmm. artisanal, like it, it's, it's a it's, history, it's a lineage, it's well, shared. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to distinguish from from artisanal for artisanal craft and art production. I'm just saying it's like on the level of seeing an object that is in a tree or is in a rock that has been manipulated to give decorative and artistic sort of uh, invite us to read it within a decorative and artistic frame. I'm saying that exists a lot at a base level. And a, and a level that doesn't exist here. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying that um, I don't know how much it was influential to me when I was younger, but in a way, that is a sort of a history that is connected to me. So that's the way I was. That's say. beautiful. Now, what, what I wanted to point out is that kind of like this art education is part of the social fabric in a very different way than it's in. I wouldn't say it that way you, either. You wouldn't say art education. No, I wouldn't say that because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't get actually art education. But it is art education. No, it's not. It's not for you? It's not at all. Mm -hmm. Education is formal. Mm -hmm. If you're just sitting under the tree and you're a lawyer, but all your neighbors over here across the street, they make art, it's like you may not be interested in, in 
investigating deeply as to what they do, mm -hmm. but you enjoy it from mm -hmm. that from from your from the distance. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't call that education. I would just call that the sort of like the fabric of the place, mm -hmm. and the fabric of the place itself makes a case for art needs to be in it, mm -hmm. and I think that's that's the informal aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So um, whereas I think the moment we start to uh, create step to help said lawyer to understand more, then it then becomes education. education. Mm -hmm. But if the lawyer never actually takes you on on those invitation, it's like it can't be really ed education. Mm -hmm. It's biosmosis. So, mm -hmm. would you say it's still a form of visual learning of like symbology of like understanding that that exists within the world? And if you see it somewhere else, you kind of sort of recognize that you're still not unaware of what it is exactly, unless you investigate, as you said. But you're still aware of its existence. Oh yeah, no, that's true. We um, we are as a kid, especially yeah. growing up, right? Yeah. yeah, we are pattern. There's a lot of absorption, as you say, because osmosis, but not necessarily understanding. Yeah, so that's why I would I would uh, edit the word learning from that okay. statement because mm -hmm. learning again is um, is active uh, is that true let me see yeah I'm gonna go with it. learning is learning is more active than it is um, than it's not so um, just to recognize a pattern I don't think is enough mm -hmm. and as much as I want to be generous but yeah I, I want is a, a I would claim is the very next step is recognizing the pattern and and maybe able to express something about that patterning. I think that's when when we recognize like ah this person is learning this person has knowledge. So yeah, uh, I think the distinction is important mostly because in a way within the same space that art exists fully, there's tons of other people for for whom. This art means nothing. It's a it's an obstacle to you know to their ambition. This is like I need to put my skyscraper here so y'all got to go, right? It's like that same person has access to the same uh, level of information or may maybe influenced similarly by the same set of condition, but yet that can. Uh, the expression of like, no, this means nothing for right, me. The importance is different, just like the people in That's that village. Right. Like, it's a means to which they make a living. Right. Like my mom's Mexican. I say artisanal not as an insult because I still see art making, whether it's crafts or regular painting of pots. Like, that's still a form of art making, but the degree of which it's um, understood, accepted, or even appreciated, obviously, is different from individual to individual. Yeah, and also different from different cultural groups and different uh, and the setting that the encounter occurs. I mean... Street versus museum, yeah. Well, I was gonna say, even within the museum, is that a guarantee that a lot of people there are like, actually what? engaging with the artwork, but mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. No, we can say that, no. Mm -hmm. totally. how, how long did you live in Haiti before you came to the States? I moved here when I was 12, so that first 12 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you basically within, I am, I was told that, you know, once that when you're 13 or younger, you belong within then this like half generation, like you're not fairly, fully first generation. I got here when I was three. So you, you're, it's almost like you grew up here, you're, you've embedded yourself within somewhat the community besides just having your own cultural background, but you feel American like I feel like I'm American. Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is the thing uh, like I sort of hinted, yeah. I hinted that earlier. It's like, yeah. you know, uh, a Haitian who's growing up, who grew up in Miami, it is like the sort of a luxury of how much Haitian culture is here mm -hmm. is high. I mean, it, it makes this ramp, the ramp to 
being American. Yes. Uh, uh, however specific that is. Um, it's a slow ramp. Oh, this could be a fast ramp, but it's a slow ramp. Versus one who just was dropped off in Kentucky. Exactly. It's like, oh, yeah. this is going to be rough. I experienced it's that It's going too. to be rough. It was, a, it was a smooth transition. Yeah. And, and that smoothness is, I don't know, I, I don't want to qualify it, but the instinct I want to say, the smooth, I think the smoothness is formative. And the way it, I think it allows some ease to like, look, you know, you didn't, you didn't come here on a Monday and by Wednesday, you're already like, I gotta, I, I, need, I need help, I need to get this job, and I don't even know. Mm -hmm. it, it may mean that you have two full weeks until you, you start saying <laughs> that. You know, it, th I think that's what the transition means. It's like, mm -hmm. in that two weeks, you can talk to 10 people mm -hmm. to give you clues of what opportunity is here versus at other places, no. You have two days and you only have one person to talk to, mm -hmm. and that's, that may not be enough. So, um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't grow up in Brooklyn, uh, so I'm sure Brooklyn is also a, a formative place for a Haitian immigrant, but it's, um, but New York is different. New York, New York is, is yeah, New York is this place where uh, any immigrant group, well, as as evidence over the centuries, uh, they they immediately connect and and there seems to be a system for them. It's just like a support system that is for for a lot of different immigrant groups. Right I wouldn't now. say support. I would say New York City depends on bodies, mm -hmm. and New York City doesn't really care, mm -hmm. right? And New York City is a place for work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like. You, you, you're a worker, great, there's a job for you. Mm -hmm. um, I, support, support is a... It's a, it's a big word. It's, it's too generous of a yeah. word. And I, I don't... I, I hate to criticize uh, on those terms, but I'm not totally sure the sort of a American experience of immigration to this country at a particular level, especially in the bottom level, is truly supportive. I think it's harsh. On a higher level, it's supportive. In, a, in essence, if you're a millionaire or, God's sake, a billionaire, and you want to move here, it's like, oh my God, it is easy. I mean, mm -hmm. but at the same time, if you're, if you're that person, there are many countries who compete for your dollars, and it is, it is easy almost in any of those places. But at the bottom level, it, it is a bit hard because you know, if English is not your first language or if English is not one of the languages you had studied earlier when you move here, that transition is going to be rough and, yeah, based on what cities you're in, it may not, yeah, it, it opens, it's an opening for not just help but also for the other end, exportation, puts you in hard situations and all kind of other things. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know. That's a, that's a thought. Oh, you first, Mary. Okay. I, I have one question that is about language. So uh, you you grew up speaking Creole, and you learned English when you came here? Or? I learned English at school in Haiti, Already. but I didn't really speak mm -hmm. English. How much uh, how much is Creole um, like entering your art making? And do you ever use Creole as you know, in your collages or in your artwork? Uh, yeah, I have some. I've just used Creole in my artwork. Um, but um, I, I don't know how much, uh, very little. Um, because ultimately, 
I learned how to make artwork here in the U.S. and uh, Creole is what I speak with my parents. It's not. It's not how I speak about artwork. It's actually. It's not. It's not easy for me to speak about my artwork in Creole or in French, for that matter, um, because that's not how the ideas are formed in mm -hmm. my head. And it's important to. I mean, I do it. There are parts where the Creole is is a compartment, just like you know, it's it's a language in a way. It's like when you're making the work of multimedia, it's like the photo part goes here, the hand drawing part goes there. There's aspect of of the work where language specific another tool yeah. comes and enters in their in their parts, but ultimately English and this sort of like multicultural aspect of English as it is the language of the art world is what dominates my thinking and that's how when I'm thinking about art that's how I think about art mm -hmm. but when I'm thinking about what to talk about my mom I don't talk it's not in English mm -hmm. so uh, so uh, for me there's some language specific thinking um, but um, yeah it, it gets complicated when when I go elsewhere. Because, like I said, I went to Haiti a couple years ago and um, and I went to this village and I was invited to talk and it's like, well, half the audiences are kids. I'm like, I, I, I had to do it in Creole. I mean, I, I, I knew I was gonna do it in Creole. But it was fine because partly it's also a population that's like, uh, it's an art and culture. Oh, this is actually the other side. So, Creole, as much as it's its own language, Creole borrows just like English from from the French heavily. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if there's a concept that I need to express, I just take the French word and Creolize it and to express that. Now, some people think that is that shouldn't be the case, but I. I disagree highly. That's not how language works. Because you can hear how people speak on the street, just here or in Haiti. And the amount of what actually dominates now in Haiti a lot more is English. Um, because ultimately, America is the dominant country in the hemisphere. And um, you hear enough English on the street of Haiti for like, from random people. I mean, you don't, it, it doesn't really matter how they've come to learn it, be it music or Haitian immigrants moving back and forth or whatever, um, ultimately a people use the language as available to them to express their ideas. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily have to go back to the history of the language to, uh, to, yeah, to communicate in a way. Mm -hmm. So what I, all that means, for example, my grandmother was 94 years old. I think the way she speaks is correct 100% of the time. And I may use a word in my Creole that's technically wrong, but if my grandmother understands it, it's okay. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually my rule. Now, if someone who's, let's say, in 50s, who's a poet or was a linguist, like, that's not a, that's not a proper way to say Creole, it's like, I don't care. Actually, I'll, my grandmother is like, again, this is right 100% of the time, the linguist and the poet, the, the writer, no, 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 no. 
they are they only write maybe 15% of the time in my estimation. And, and that distinction is important because what it means is that I believe my grandmother for her 94 years has a longer arc of connection with the language. Sure, when she was maybe in her teens, her, you know, certain complex things about the economy or uh, iPhone or uh, uh, these things wouldn't exist. And, it, it, and But that's not what I'm leaning on. Mm -hmm. It's also concept like, I don't know, like immigration. I'm mean, like, that would not be in her vocabulary as a 13 year old, mm -hmm. even though people were moving, you know, from Haiti to all over the world because people would move all the time. There would have been, in her language, there would have been other words that are used. But in her arc of her time, there's other words that have come to hold ideas of like what it means for a Haitian who've moved from Haiti to the Bahamas and moved back, right? It's like, you know, it's like that, that for me is, 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 is sort of the importance of language. And it's deeply local in a way, and it has to do with who you're talking to. And that's why in a way, uh, when I make art, um, my, the art, my peers and colleague in my audience um, impact, it, yeah. It requires a different language. Mm -hmm. So it can have some French words, it can have some Creole words, it can have some Spanish words, but ultimately, it, it is form, the language as its form is American art. Well, I shouldn't say uh, art, art English, I guess, is, is, is the language that is formed. And that's very specific. It's actually mm -hmm. art English is irrelevant for. English speakers who doesn't practice art. They don't understand what we, half the thing that we say. So it's mm -hmm. not even, it's not even, it's even more specific than that. Yeah. I had two questions before we had hers. The first one was um, after school, um, why stay in Miami? And then the second one was what language do you dream in? Please go. <laughs> I dream in English. I, 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 I kind of know that. Um, except, yeah, so I actually I don't know because I I I don't think if I were to be truthful, I don't really hear language and when I dream. Oh, okay. I know I see images. Okay. So I think I dream in English, but many times I dream of very specific places in Haiti and I doubt that I'm dreaming in English when I go into those places. So it's places when I was younger, my grandmother's houses, uh, my both grandmothers. Um, it's like English wouldn't be the language except if I'm within a sort of a time warp of dream, I'm an adult going back there, but yeah, it gets too complicated, I don't know. Um, but, but I believe in my dream uh, images dominate and not necessarily language, not, not in a way that is pronounced or specific. Mm -hmm. So that's that. Um, I graduated college in 2000. And um, so 2000 Miami is a very dynamic place and, um, and mostly uh, the art world is like, it's, it's actually not too far from how this place is, I mean, uh, um, uh, big houses. And that is a place that seems to uh, really centers on artists practicing, mm -hmm. artists curating shows, artists doing projects here and there. And I wanted to participate in that. So I was like, okay, I was, I was done 
I was done in June because I had a, a summer course. And then let's say that July, August, me and a couple of friends were like, okay, let's let's put it on the show together. Let's let's develop a project to put on the show together. So pretty much immediately it was like uh, Miami Miami in nineteen ninety I'll say eight, nineteen ninety-nine, nineteen two thousand. It is it tells it tells you, it's like, if you want to make artwork, uh, make artwork. Propose it here, propose it there. The opportunities were there to share. Now, it's not, I was, I'm sure it was still very difficult to make a living. I had no plans for that, so, but I knew I wanted to make artwork. Mm -hmm. So, there you go. Oh, that's nice. I'm curious, um, going back to your dreams and these splices of imagery, um, when you're creating your artwork and you're using photographs and you're scrapbooking and collaging these um, different mediums together. Does anything you ever recollect from your dreams somehow, you know, just fr like come into the art? I I, I don't think so. And really. I I don't know. But the the more generous way to phrase it has just has to do uh, how we read any image. Mm -hmm. In essence, we read it with the knowledge that's inside of us. It's not necessarily. It's not necessarily with what we recognize, but intuition connects to the subconscious in a way. So, you know, what what we see or the impression that it makes or the sort of like the impulse that an image may engender is not it's it's not always clear which part of you where uh, yeah, that source resides. And it goes back to that visual learning I spoke of. Sometimes yeah, you exactly. see something, but you don't necessarily understand it. Totally. So, so I, so I don't know. So, as much as, as much as I, want to say, sure, of course, uh, but such assurance it, it would be team, would yeah. be too would be too hard uh, for it to be true, because it's um, what informs. Uh, the marks that we make or how we frame the work that we do is very fluid and that's actually what makes you know a good artwork a good artwork actually gets that from its audience right for the most cerebral ones immediately it gets uh, what this that or the other uh, implies and and those who are purely instinctual there's something about you know a messy mark or yeah, yeah. or two things adjacent to each other it's like wow this is this and is visceral, it totally. and um yeah that's what that's what good artworks that's how it function um and you know we ultimately as much as we you know have plans for an artwork ultimately it's like well, there's a moment where it's like the artwork demands this for it to be good, yeah. and we have to give it to it. And if you don't, you technically know it, and everyone else will know it. And the next person walking into the studio is like, there's something about this I don't know. I can't tell you what it is, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, you currently have a, um, I should say, residency at the Art Center of South Florida. Um, are there any projects you're currently excited about or new things you're developing and within your own practice? If it's not within dreams, how is it that you more or less start to formulate these new bodies of work? And, right. You know? Well, um, one of the things we haven't talked about is, like, in a way, uh, the larger arc of my practice. I mean, I make artwork about places and landscape where I am at sort of any moment in time. And because of sort of uh, the vastness of that subject, there's always a little 
something to pick up to to develop a, a line. So, upcoming projects. I mean, my the the big upcoming project is um, uh, it's called it's a, a project I'm collaborating with Domingo Castillo. Okay, cool. It's about a cemetery that's in Brownsville, Lincoln nice. Memorial, and um, we're we're trying to learn as much about it. We're trying to develop a sort of a a project to help the rest of mine to learn as much about it. Um, a cemetery is sort of a special place yeah. um, in human development. I mean, in a way, we've always buried, we've, we've always taken care of our dead in a manner that is very specific uh, for a reason that's not really clear. And it so varies culturally. It's just immense how much it varies. Exactly. Because some, a lot of time we do it for the dead, but really, I think 99% of the time we do it for the living. Mm -hmm. We do it because we need, uh, we need to connect and mourn. Yeah. We need to connect, mourn. We need to, in essence, wrap around our head our own mortality. Um, also, to stay healthy, it's kind of like I think that was probably early that, that, reasoning, right? To well, bury the bodies well, because I, I would say the the early reasoning is like it's not that. Well, actually, I shouldn't say it that way. Yeah, I, I would say yes, I, I have to agree. What, what I was thinking is like, you wouldn't want to live, no one wants to live with the dead because of uh, a body decomposing becomes complicated. So yeah, you take it outside, you take it out of your living situation, you clean your sheets, you clean the house, blah, blah, blah. Um, but unless there's overpopulation, and I guess there was some overpopulation in certain cities. So yes, that's actually one of them too. So yeah, the sort of like healthiness of it goes not just for the mind, but quite literally for the body. Because it's, um, I mean, if you think of like, I just think of the plague, for example, right? No, I just yeah, think of oh, various diseases in, in Europe. Yeah. I think yeah, like, diseases, but I also think of like the you for have to human, get rid of the, bodies, the emotional, and also like the spiritual. I mean, like the Vikings that would like mm -hmm. burn their dead, and but for example, and also, like the Egyptians no. would mummify bodies. So it's, it, there's there's such a long history of yeah. it, yeah, and it's so important in each unique different circumstance. What was it? What was the disease that was happening in the? Oh, that's called leprosy. Yeah, see it in Austrian. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. At the but it's not leprosy. It was it was happening in in like uh, in uh, cholera. That's no, the no, 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 no. Cholera, that? cholera is not that. Bubonic plague. It's not bubonic plague, but it's a it's a variation on that. But it was in the news about four or five years ago in Sub-Saharan uh, Africa. Um, and the problem with that was that one of the rituals that used to occur with the dead, it was a sort of like final wash of the body, oh, no. and that was not allowed, because if you're touching that dead body, you're, spreading you're touching, you spreading it yourself, oh, and that no. was a big problem, uh, right? Yeah. So those rituals- The last rites are always so, yeah. Exactly, those rituals are different, and They're for a culture them. who's like, they must wash the body of their loved one, that is the ritual. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the dirt, it's not the burning, it's the washing, mm. right? And maybe the they display. They don't have hazmat suits, yeah. Right? And it's, it's those little things for me that's like, that makes a subject really large. Just and, the nuance. Just and sure. a cemetery being that, that final place that marks where, you know, that body is buried or the ashes is like on a mausoleum. It's just a site 
it's just a public site to mark that because clearly there was always private there are private sites that mirrors that finality and you know you and I are not privy to what our neighbors how our neighbors mourn their parents um, but the public one is equally engaging because uh, on a in a city as large as ours with multi uh, many cultural and many ritualistic uh, uh, ways to handle death. The question that I personally have is like, how can a cemetery be the site for that public engagement for various cultures, right? It's like, mm -hmm. because ultimately now, the dominant culture in all cemeteries is a, is a mortuary business. It's like whatever the mortuary person says, it's not even religion anymore, I would say, I guess. Um, you know, it's like caskets and blah, blah, blah. It's, a, it's like, it's those, that is the line that is like the most dominant. And it's not culture, it's like technically business. Um, and I feel that's a little too, that's, uh, I wanna make a case We're for culture. Into it, yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, that, so that's a project, and it, and and it's tough partly because um, such a heavy subject. Yeah, and for those whose families are buried there, uh, they may not know it or not. But the moment the thinking of that cemetery comes into discussion, they're not thinking about the cemetery. They're technically always going to be thinking of their loved one, and they will they will want to protect that memory mm -hmm. and it's very intimate also yeah and so it's i think it's i think it's interesting i, I mm. think We're it's a, to it'll be a, a tough project to actually do right mm -hmm. um but I'm sure i also right. think it's a, it's a project that needs to be done mostly because it's like yeah i i i really don't see at least here in south florida a site where the handling of the dead is done in a manner that evoke larger cultural expression or larger thinking about death and mortality. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's necessary. I mean, I should say uh, veteran cemeteries because of the army. Arlington, or, totally. They, they tend to be of a particular rigor that mirrors armed forces, the perfectness of lines and blah, blah, blah. That's okay. Uh, that's, its own, that's its own cultural expression. Um, but um, I, I want a messy one. I want another one that's deep in the neighborhood. And, mm -hmm. that, and what, the, what, is, what does that mean? How do we read that? Okay. We are at the end of our interview. Oh, I had one very, more very question. Last, very last yeah. question is actually the magical question. Okay, okay. <laughs> You've been sitting in a magical rocking chair, uh -huh. and it grants you three wishes. Okay. You have to say them out loud for them to come true. So what would your three wishes be? Who's granting me these wishes, by the way? The rocking chair. The chair itself, okay. The chair. And are they framing for my wishes? Are they about anything? About Indef anything. Oh, uh, yeah. That is, that is too broad. Um, well, <laughs> I would say, you know, it's... My wishes, no, my, my general wishes for the, for the chair, uh, at least in context of what we talked about, has to do with 
you know, making this place better. It's like making this place better for us. I mean, the problem with that is like, I don't really think that's a good way I should use my wish because I don't think it's a, I don't think magic is, there's no evidence that magic will help on that. So then, um, hmm. I guess I'd never listen to well, the last. Well, maybe if others hear your wish, yeah? they will want to join forces with you <laughs> and help to make this place a better place. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, but well, interestingly, interestingly, that is not my wish. That that's already out there. Um, well, what can? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, you know. Ultimately, my wishes are very simple: more art, better education, and more sweetness in the world. I mean, it's actually, it's actually very, very easy, right? We live in Miami in places like, for, for the tourists and sort of retiree set at, at one point, and it- Very few locals, yeah. Well, no, a lot of people come here. There's about, when you hear like statistics, it's like, there's about a, mil, a million and a half hotel rooms in Miami, in South Florida. If it's at 90% capacity, that's almost a million people driving around the city. Visiting. Yeah, it's like the population of Miami-Dade County is what, 2.6 million? And then there's another million people driving around? That's a whole lot of people. A lot of people come here. And so the reason they come here is because here it gives them a little something. And so my wish is to like, okay, let's extend that so that we all get to participate in that on a daily basis. That's great. So I'll use all my three wishes on that. All right. Thank you so thank much you for so coming much, to with us. Uh -huh. And thank you guys for listening. And we're going to be back next week with yes. uh, session, session 46. 46. Session Bye, guys. 46. Happy President's Yeah, it's President's Day. Okay. <laughs> Bye.